chapter 12 was a bit of a kind of a, 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 a discursus where Luke goes back to Jerusalem for a moment and tells the story of, of James and Peter and Herod. But before that, Brandon took us through the church in Antioch in Acts 11. And in Antioch, we began to see, because of the spread of persecution, the disciples on the run, on the lamb, and all along the way, doesn't stop them from being disciples, and all along the way, they are telling of Jesus, and as Jesus is being proclaimed, he is changing lives. First among the Jews up in Antioch, but then some of those that were Gentiles began to hear up in Antioch as well, and you, and you had this kind of burgeoning of a, of a church there. And in Antioch, because Antioch is the closest landmass to the island of Cyprus, there were people from Cyprus that were landed in Antioch that began to hear the word as well. And so with that, we're going to see an initiative into Cyprus. Not just an initiative, as the title of the sermon is today, a showdown. A showdown in Cyprus because Gentiles are on board, Gentiles are coming to the Lord, and the, the, the Gentile population includes some from Cyprus, now in Antioch, getting ready and excited to launch. So here we go. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Niger just simply means black, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. There is so much that is packed into this little bit that, that Luke has given to us. I just want to draw attention to a couple things. Okay, now remember, after this kind of discourses down in Jerusalem, he brings us back again up to Antioch to see what has been going on there. The Antioch church, the, the, the church ends up becoming the, the great launch pad for missions. Chapter 13 and 14 describes the first missionary journey. Paul has three famous missionary journeys. This is the first of those. This is kind of planting the seeds in Antioch as it begins to percolate and, and because of the Holy Spirit and ultimately sending out so that everybody hears about Jesus. Now here's what's cool about the church in Antioch. Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. The church here was filled with with, with great talent, but it says there were prophets and teachers, gifts that were God-given to prepare the saints for works of ministry. But now here's what's interesting is Barnabas is mentioned here. Barnabas is uh, a Jew, and he's a kind of a Greek-speaking Jew who came originally from from uh, uh, from Cyprus, right? So he's, he's originally from Cyprus. Uh, so you've got him in Antioch, You've also got Simeon, who would have been black, as he's called Niger. He, he would have been an African, but, but, but an African that would have appeared black. Now, the next one is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is also in Africa, but it's North Africa. And you would probably have been someone that would have appeared uh, much more kind of Arabic in, in appearance. Uh, so you've, you've got a kind of a, a, a Greek Jew uh, you've also, but, but also an ethnic Jew, nonetheless, uh, in, in terms of uh, of his uh, genetic makeup and, and his look about him. Then, then you've got a black African. Then you've got an an, an Arab, 
And then you have Menaean. Now, Menaean is a mind-blowing guy here because he basically was the foster brother of Herod Antipas. You know what Herod that is? The Herod who, in his home, said, cut off the head of John the Baptist because of my lustful ideas and and uh, promises that I've made. Cut off the head of John the Baptist. The same Herod that Jesus would have appeared before uh, just a chapter later of what uh, Bill was just preaching. Now, these are two people that grew up together as foster brothers. And wow, what different paths that we have here that Menaean ends up being who he is and now being part of the central core of leadership of the church there, there in Antioch. Mind-blowing what, what God is able to bring together. And then lastly, Saul. Uh, kind of a fiery, yet nonetheless professorial, nerdy, Jew, rabbi of rabbis. I mean, what a cast of characters that you've got here. But that's the, the, the beauty of the Christian church. That it is absolutely diverse from Jump Street. And where the Holy Spirit is really bringing the church together remains diverse. And it is absurd to ever have a church that begins to look in, in some way homogenous. God, God forbid that... Because that really does smack of something that would be something brought together by the work of man and not the work of the Holy Spirit. Moving on, in, well, by the way, now we have this idea of the Holy Spirit saying, I don't know how he would say this, perhaps he said it through the prophets or the teachers, but he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It is said as a quote, um, I'm imagining that it was brought forth with rather great clarity. This is as the word of God is being confirmed, and so as they're receiving the word of God, and miracles typically attest to the word of God being confirmed, uh, this is being laid out. But here's what's important, because this is a massive shift. For the very first time, intentionality of mission comes into the church. Every other time, as I've mentioned, persecution drives the dispersion of Jesus. Now, for the first time, the Holy Spirit is teaching the church that you're going to become a deliberate, intentional, missional church, and you're going to head out into new lands, lands that have been under the dominion of evil through through the Gentiles. The, 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 the uh, Deuteronomy 32 worldview that we talked about a while back, it's not just going into a new country, into a new land. You're going into an area that has been, been held dominant by real evil. Real evil forces. And you're going to head into that evil land and you're going to take that land with your word about Jesus. Like, how amazing is that? And they do. And so, for the first time now, intentionality comes into play. And it is interesting that where is the place that they, that they talk about? It is heading into Cyprus. Now, they're in Antioch. They go down to the port of Seleucia. Let's go ahead and read that so you know what I'm talking about. The two of them, that's Barnabas and Saul, sent out on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. 
That was Paul's, not only his custom, it was his theology. Romans 1.16 says that this comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Uh, then they traveled the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So if you just kind of draw your attention to the map there, uh, Antioch is, is inland. An, another, you know, maybe uh, 10, 16 miles down is, the, is Seleucia. Uh, and from there, they set sail. It's only about a, maybe about uh, 60 miles or so to sail from Seleucia to Salamis, but this would be the, the very first place they would come to. Cyprus is a, an island of great, long renown. We don't have time to go into it, but it has a long, long, long uh, history to it and, and a lot of mythology behind it as well. Uh, they land in the, the quickest port there in Salamis. Right away in Salamis, there was a synagogue. Par- apparently there were synagogues perhaps even along the way as they continued to preach the word. And that became their base camp. That was a spot where there were already people gathered that were reading the scriptures. And they were going to show the fulfillment of those scriptures. But here's the interesting thing. At this point in time, and I'll, I'll talk about this later when we get to Thessalonica in the book of Acts At this point in time, God has arranged the world for the most receptive, fertile soil for the gospel that we could even begin to imagine. Because what is going on here is that there's already, even among the Gentiles, prophecies among Gentiles that the one is coming. In in Jerusalem, we talked many, many times about messianic fever, that the Messiah is coming. But it was not limited just to the Jewish world. All of the Gentile world had a buzz about them. Perhaps it was after Augustus Caesar, the 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 son of God was was his name. Perhaps it was going to be another Caesar. Perhaps it would be another one that would liberate them from the Romans. But nonetheless, all the world was a buzz about the one who was to come. Now, here's what's interesting: is that the base camps that uh, Paul goes to, these synagogues is a place where they already had scriptures all in all of the synagogues he went to translated into Greek, which was the common language now of all of the Mediterranean basin, all of what would be considered the known world. Everybody had access to the scriptures, to the Old Testament scriptures, and that meant that there were not just simply Jews in those synagogues, there were God-fearers people like Cornelius, people that were already attending the synagogue, but were Gentile, Greek, Roman, not Jewish, and quite eager to want to know even more about this Yahweh and his greatness, and ultimately now to hear about it from the One and the Messiah, all wrapped up into One. This comes at an explosive time where people begin to realize this is what the world has been waiting for, both Jew and Gentile. Okay. Um, and, and so they make their, their way through. Now, we're going to see, and this is kind of a Raphael, you know, a classic uh, uh, painting of the scene with uh, the, the proconsul there seated. To the left is, is Paul preaching, and to the right is Elimias, the uh, fellow that we were just introduced to in verse 6, a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So continuing in verse verse 6. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the pro-council. He would have been an an intimate advisor of him, even though he was a Jew. Uh, And and by the way, calling him a a sorcerer, it may not not be maybe the 
the right emphasis that you should be hearing when you hear that. Uh, the word is magon, or where we get magus, or magi. Uh, it, it is the word of Daniel in the courts of Babylon. But it is, it is either a sage, a wise person, uh, or, or perhaps one that is using divining powers to try to have insight to be able to provide counsel to a, to, to a, a, an important official like a pro-counsel uh, here. Uh, Cyprus is a, a senatorial province of Rome. Uh, a senatorial province is a province where there are no troops. Judea is not a senatorial province. It's an imperial province because they had tons of troops over in Jerusalem and, and throughout Judea. But this is a proconsul who would preside over a senatorial province. And you might think, well, is it strange that a proconsul would be taking advice from a, a Jewish sage? Well, Rome was very, let's, you know, they had coexist bumper stickers well before we did. Uh, and in order to administrate such a far-flung empire, they realized the only way this is going to work is we're going to let them have their pretend gods and let them have their supposed gods and, and let them worship the oddities that they worship. Let's not get into that. Let's just control the place, have strategic territory, and plunder it as much as we can. All right, so if they want to get, do, do what they do with their gods, let's let them do that. And so Rome became ultra-tolerant, just as would be a culture today, of, of any and every form of worship that existed. But if they felt like there was efficacy, if there was a pragmatic uh, contribution that came from even a Jew, uh, a, a Jewish wise man in your council, well, they went with that as well. Hey, if it works, they went with it. They didn't have much in the way of conscience that would keep them from being able to receive anything that would make their administration more effective. So, there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Interesting name, right, for it. But Bar-Jesus, of course, would mean son of, son of salvation. Uh, or, or even son of Jesus. Bar is just uh, son of in, in Hebrew. Uh, he was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. By the way, there is archaeological evidence. It's none of it's like so kind of hard and fast. But a lot of because it was a, a very common name, the, the the Sergius Paulus name. It would have been the middle and last names in um, uh, in in Rome. Romans had a prinomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. Uh, different ways of saying first name, middle name, and last name. Why didn't I just say that? Mm, this, is, this is a failing of mine. Um, <laughs> But, but, but nonetheless, they, they would have, they, they would have um, had that. So all we've got here is his nomen and cognomen, not his first name. So it, it doesn't kind of narrow him down to who he really was. But nonetheless, uh, lots of archaeological evidence that could place such a name in this place at that time. Uh, again, confirming Luke as one of the greatest historians of the ancient world. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. This wanting to hear the word of God is a, a, a seeking word that appears a lot in our Bible, but it's interesting that this version of the word seeking is often used not in the most positive sense. And, for example, in, in Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, when talks about uh, what will we wear, what will we eat, what will we have, the Gentiles seek after these things. Same word that's used here. Uh, 
also when Jesus says it is a pervert, evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Same, same word that, that, that's used for, for seeking here. Uh, but, but there are some times where the word is used in a bit more positive sense. So I'm not sure which way this intelligent proconsul was going about it. It may have been that he began going about it in perhaps not the most pure of all ways. It just may have been that in his intelligence, he had an intellectual curiosity and wanted to beckon whoever these new public philosophers were that has come upon his island. They seem to be causing a stir. Let's, let's bring them on in and see what they have to say. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, I'm also going to take a pause here. Saul is his Hebrew name. Of course, it is you know, kind of brought down from King Saul in, in 1 Samuel. But Saul, or Saulus, would not have the same impact to a Gentile Greco-Roman world. And if you heard it in Greek, Saulus, you would have heard the term for someone who was effeminate. And in, in, a, in a negative connotation, that would have gone with that. A very, very negative connotation. Not just effeminate, but like an effeminate prostitute would, would be the flavor of, of, the, of the term solus as it is, is taken out of Hebrew and just transliterated into Greek. So it's probably a, a bit of a practical idea on, on, on Paul's part to go ahead and shift his name. Now, being a Roman citizen, he probably had... Uh, a, a name like Paul already. It, it would have been his his cognomen, his his kind of official name, like you know Gaius Julius Caesar would have would have um, had that extra name of of uh, Caesar at the end. That's his cognomen. Paulus would have been his. Now Paulus is interesting because in having this name that he now uses, it's not as though he's saying, which means the greatest, right? Paulus doesn't mean that. It, it kind of means what is, was, was said about him, little. It just means someone who is, who, who is small of stature. Uh, and so now he is going by Paulus. But again, it's, it doesn't have the, the, the same negative connotations that Saulus would have had. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the law, Lord. Okay, so let me bring this thing home with just a look at the three main characters that we have here. Uh, as we, we take a look at the preacher, the convert, and the pervert. Uh, for, for that is what uh, Alemus is trying to do here. So as we, we take a look at, at each one of those in turn. So my first point is the preacher. And the preacher here is, of course, Paul. Now, Paul is full of the Holy Spirit and he looks intensely at Elimus. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he brings it. He brings it in a way that might actually make our postmodern ears feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, that's his lead-in. You 
are a son of the devil. Oh, thank you very little for, 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 for that. But that's how he begins. You are a son of the devil. But by the way, his name was son of Jesus. Son of salvation. Jesus simply means salvation in Hebrew. So he's actually making sure that this, this con artist of a charlatan, of an advisor, is being exposed for what he is. Why? Why all of this? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit of Christ, he has the compassion of Christ. With being filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, he has a depth of a love for truth. And, and as such, he has to really now not go by humanism, but go by the Spirit of Christ. And my goodness, when you think about what it is that Jesus even said, hey, this is the verdict that that light has come into the world, but men hated the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Uh, the... The proconsul's soul is on the line. And as a preacher, Paul has got to have the compassion to do what it takes to clear out the perversion that is going on because it's the gospel. It's truth that is at stake here. Now, oddly, if this probably played out in our 21st century, it would be a much different scene. Probably they would be arguing with Paul about, well, what is truth really? And a pro-council today would probably be saying, you know, it's good to hear your views, Christian man, but um, maybe maybe you could just kind of tone it down a bit because we're all into just being able to really have tolerance for one another. And if we could just mutually respect one another and that your truth can be a truth for you and his truth can be a truth for him and their truth can be a truth for them, why don't we just go about it that way? And that that is, I think... Satan's great strategy today to try to take the teeth and the claws out of the wonder that is the gospel. To defang it and declaw it uh, so that all it does is just kind of land a glancing blow that doesn't ever change lives. But Paul the preacher, the missionary, he is here for a reason. He is here to save this man's soul and in the process needs to shut down what is in the way right now. And when there is real opposition, real opposition, I mean, at this case, to the gospel, then you've got to do what it takes to be able to just shut it down. And so he does call this out. Now, for someone who is truly filled with the Spirit, I think one of the other things that you recognize about Paul being filled with the Spirit is that He's not afraid to try to really look deeply into the soul of this man. To, to be more than surfacy, To get down and deep into the issues that, that really are there. And to not be afraid to share what it is that the Holy Spirit is really prompting him to say. He is a man full of truth and compassion in distinction to... Elimus, who is full of deceit and trickery. But more importantly, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He has been charged by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if we're to learn a lesson from this first of all intentional missions, then for us to, to really recognize, so are you. You were reborn of the Holy Spirit. You were given the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. You were brought into Christ by the Holy Spirit. You were brought into the body of Christ, having been baptized by one spirit into one body. You are being encouraged constantly by the Holy Spirit. You were brought to faith because you were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who now sanctifies you to be able to appreciate your spiritual maturity every single day as you grow into more and more the likeness of Christ with the Spirit of Christ. Let's appreciate Jesus' ascension so that His Holy Spirit can be doing this work in every one of us. And yes, there's a miraculous measure that attends to some of Paul's work, but the more important aspects of the Holy Spirit that of holiness and truth and clarity and discernment, all are ours. And and likewise, the will of the Lord. And how many times have I been in front of someone realizing, you know what, the Holy Spirit is really wanting me to be more vulnerable right now. But instead, in my flesh, I do the Heisman and make a joke. And, and don't have the depth of fellowship that I was meant to have by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is wanting me to be bold right now. But instead, in my flesh and in my pride, worry about my reputation, I think I'm being wise and strategize. I say, well, I don't know. There's a long line here right now. Would it really be appropriate to, to talk about this right now? You know, Whenever I deny the Holy Spirit, nothing happens. For the gospel. And it's sad that when I really do put my inhibitions aside, move my flesh aside, and be a vessel for the Holy Spirit, those are the days where I have life to the full. Just as Jesus promises, a hundred times as much. A hundred times as much. Now, by the way, he also promises when you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit, when you have a hundred times as much, you get with that persecutions, but that's the thrill ride. Of, of living our lives for, for Christ. Uh, and my goodness, I think we would all do well to take a look at the example of Paul here and know that there is an amazing life that is available to every one of us if we would just take our flesh out of the way, stop governing the unlimited wonders that would be our lives through the Holy Spirit. So secondly, the preacher and now the pervert. As he said here, you are perverting the right ways of the Lord. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? You know what's interesting? As the gospel is now making its way into foreign land, you begin to see the pattern that now it's the Gentiles that are receptive and the Jews that are the opposition. And, and you see, even here, as, as we'll see later in Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva, uh, that, that are all of, of, of Jewish ancestry, all being the great opposers of the gospel. Uh, and, and here, for sure, Alemus is that, that and then some. But in his opposition, usually opposition occurs... Now, there are a lot of people 
that don't want to receive the gospel, and they, they don't necessarily oppose it, they just simply reject it. Uh, and you, I, I rejected the gospel for so long, but why? Just hedonism, pleasure, selfish ambition, uh, a, a refusal to deny myself for the sake of something sweeter and greater that was all available in the gospel but because I thought I knew better and I thought that I had a, a better path for my life. right? But none of that caused me to oppose the gospel. right? I wasn't like hunting down people that were listening to the gospel and, and trying to oppose it. No, to oppose the gospel usually means that you are hitting on either pride or materialism in the New Testament. Pride or materialism. That if you take great pride in your version, a perverted version of the gospel, well, and someone is trying to really bring full-blown, unfiltered Jesus to bear, well then, that's usually when opposition occurs. Now what also happens is wherever there's new work of God, opposition occurs. Your neighborhood may still be a new work for you. Why not get after it? But as you do, get ready. You know why? Because opposition will occur. But don't be surprised by it. Do you think that this is just some sort of a political campaign where we're trying to win over more people to your way of thinking than another? No, this is spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare deluxe in what we're looking about right now. Get engaged. You've got an amazing life that awaits you. But you've also got tremendous foes that will oppose you. But so what? Because when you do, and when you are opposed, guess who wins at the end of the day? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are with you. The evidence, the historical evidence of a risen Christ who makes the difference is your truth on your side. And to have an unfiltered biblical response to what Jesus has done through the Gospel, my goodness, that is a threat to those who would like to tame it down and allow it to be on their own more anemic terms. A comfortable Christianity. All of that will pounce as you really bring unfiltered Christianity. And please, though, get in the game. There's no sweeter life than knowing that your life is of a transcendent significance. That you're part of the very work of God. That's what it says here. They were set apart for the work of the Lord. Be part of the work of the Lord. Now, but by the way, going back here, he is trying to pervert the ways of God. Uh, and in, in doing so, it's, uh, it's quite interesting to, to, to see that he's going to be under a divine judgment right away for doing so. It's, it's, I think it's one of the most dangerous things to try to take straight paths that are made clear in the gospel and just pervert them. Because that's sometimes more dangerous than just simply saying, it's all a sham. It's all, no. But to say, yeah, you know what? That, that could be the way of the Lord, but let's just alter it a bit here. Uh, and, and when that happens, there is an automatic and, and quick response that is, that, that is met. Uh, through the Holy Spirit to him. But, but I think it's a bit of a, kind of even a bit of a precursor from, from what uh, Jesus says in the Gospels that, that those who are blind will see, but those who claim to see will be made blind. 
And so it does go down this very way on, on this man uh, in, in a terrible way. Uh, Jesus says, throw that worthless servant outside in Matthew 25 into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, Jesus says, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all of that is really a reference back to the prophet Isaiah, who, who says in Isaiah 5, 20, what are those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, and Alimus does exactly that. And for for anyone that would call good evil, right? That that you're trying to to love and reach out. And how many are quick to be able to say again because it is encroaching on their pride? You're being judgmental. They're calling good evil. Who here wants to judge? Who here wants to condemn? Judge, judge, and condemn is the same word in the Greek language. They're basically saying to you, you're just condemning me. The narcissist always feels condemned. <laughs> always feels condemned when anything is brought their way that is a course correction to their filtered version of their way of life. It will always be the case. But it doesn't mean that we shrink back and it doesn't mean that even in our own lives, we don't invite it as well, uh, that, that we, we keep going, we keep going because the perversions are deep and strong. The perversions are as many flavors as there could possibly be, as many ways that you could take the straight paths of what it is to follow Jesus, to live for Christ, to be holy in an unholy world. In, in every way possible, those paths have been perverted. But I think one of the, the big perversions, of course, here that um, Elimus represents is this idea of just kind of taking a little bit of all truths and making it all okay. He's obviously in a court of a Gentile proconsul. He's one that is practicing some sort of sorcery, which is forbidden by Jewish law. He's appropriating some sort of magical sorcery uh, practices bringing that into some version of Judaism and doing so on an island that is based on the worship of Venus. So all of that is going on in him and, and it is a perversion of the clarity of the gospel because I'm, I'm sure that he would love to be able to say, sure, let them have their time in the synagogue over there, but let's confine it to that. They have their truth about the Messiah, but we'll have ours as well. Uh, and, and Christianity doesn't allow for that. And you're going to have to make those things clear again and again in this day and age. And it's going to be one of the most unpopular things that you do, filled with the Spirit, is to tell other people, yes, I appreciate your love for freedom, your love for tolerance, your love for all people, but it's misguided. Yes, I have a tolerance for all people, but that's not the same thing as having a tolerance for all ideas. There's a big difference between that. Paul loved all of these people, but he's not going to love all of their ideas, especially ones that are perverse and set themselves up against. And one of the great ones is this idea of why don't we just kind of look at an amalgamation of different philosophies and religions and worship styles, not worship styles, but, but, but worship ideas that set up other sovereignties 
for worship that nonetheless all get you to the same place one way or another. Again, that is so perverse. Why? Because then it makes Jesus out to be the worst stooge in human history. Please, please, I know I've said this before, but please, let's never lose sight of this. If Jesus is not the only way, then he's a fool. Because why would he undergo the horrors of torture, of being butchered and disgraced and humiliated publicly for our sins if he could just namaste his way to the Lord? If he could just greater enlightenment his way to the Lord. Why choose that way if there are other ways? And God's a monster if there are other ways. But there are no other ways. And is it not appropriate for the most loving, precious... What other... What other God has ever said... This is my blood poured out for your sins. None ever has. None ever did. None ever provided historical evidence. Only the gospel makes this clear. And it is not Jesus' prerogative to tell us, I died for you. I shed my own blood for your soul. And by the way, just so you have clarity and make this simple, this is the way that your deep fulfillment of your soul and the ultimate destination that was always destined for you can be realized is through me. And no other way allows you to come to where you were always meant to be. After that great act of love and that great clarifying of it, is that so wrong? Of course it's not so wrong. But because any who would bring that about would surrender self to live for him... Of course, the threat of that makes anybody and everybody want to find ways to pervert it. We have got to, if we're going to be spirit-filled people, keep clarifying the way to the Lord because the perversions will never end. And, and finally, the preacher, the pervert, and the convert. And amen that we have here in Sergius Paulus an intelligent man who goes from sort of seeking to being won over radically. And I, and I love that Paul doesn't win him over with logical propositions. He doesn't win him over with philosophical arguments. He simply wins him over the way that he wins so many over on his missionary journeys. Uh, in a little while, we'll, we'll see him end up in, in Thessalonica on a missionary journey. And, and there, as I think as he does here, he says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. What won over Sergius Paulus? It tells us right here what it was. When he saw the power of the Holy Spirit and heard the word of the Lord. That is a potent combination brought about with a deep conviction changes everything. It is more powerful than anything that Elimus could bring about. It is more powerful than everything that he potentially has to give up in his privileged position as pro-counsel. It overcomes all of that so that even a man in such a position can deny self and live for Christ. 
that's the power that, that Paul was able to wield. Uh, by, by the way, he also says that because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And later, right after that, he says, and we also thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. We've got the word of God. We've got the way of God, the way of salvation, an unadulterated, in no way perverted path to beauty and redemption and Jesus. Right here, it's ours. And it's ours to be able to bring to any and every. And in this case, Sergio Paulus, sure, I think fine-sounding arguments could have made a difference. Yes, apologetic evidences help to kind of maybe uh, plow the ground a bit. But none of that has anything in comparison to the word of the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit. Ones who have shared not only the gospel, but their lives as well. And so even for us today, the work of the Holy Spirit is evident as I look across this room. Change life, change life, change life, change life, change life. Unmistakable and unperverted because the change of that life is one who has turned to the Lord. How did that come about? By the word of the Lord. There is alignment between what I read here and what I see there. As, as we're able to keep that together and bring it to a world that needs to know, the world is going to respond because you have Jesus behind you. You have God on your side. You have the Holy Spirit working through you. If we would just let our flesh fall to the side, let our inhibitions get out of the way, our desire for reputation, all of that to just move aside and to be vehicles of the Spirit of Christ, my goodness, what a big difference that that would make. And so in conclusion, rely on the Holy Spirit this week. Rely on the Holy Spirit that you too could take a clear stand for the gospel. And especially if it's been perverted. Especially if you've had a conversation at work or with family or neighbors or whomever and you've talked about maybe the gospel and what it's like to be in a community of Christ and heard something from them with like, yeah, well, so long as you all believe. Yeah, well, so long as you're a good person. Yeah, well, so long as you all just really love. You know you've heard it. And you know that the Holy Spirit prompted you to go back. Well, let this text be the final prompting where we do exactly that. Where we go back and out of love, out of compassion, make crooked paths straight. Because those straight paths lead to Jesus. Amen. Thank you.